Awesome. Well, good morning. Some great stuff going on around here just everywhere. And uh, I have really been enjoying uh, this series personally in my own spiritual life. How many of you were able to do your small group? You were able to jump in your small group this week and you kind of looked at your priority levels and had some conversations about that. Um, you know, last week we talked about being unsettled and what is the settled and unsettled and then how do we get unsettled. And this week we're going to start kind of beginning some kind of basic topics of what kind of ways we could look at our lives where we've settled. And we're, today we're going to start with our beliefs. And I, I guess that sounds kind of odd to talk about unsettling your beliefs, especially for those of us, you know, we're evangelicals. We're, we're like, hey, you know, we believe in a certain set of doctrines. What are you saying? You want me to unsettle those? I mean, you want me to stop, dis, stop believing in them? You want me to like, re-examine my theology? Uh, not necessarily, but I do think uh, what I want to say this morning is, is important about what we do with our theology, how you go about examining what you believe, what it does in your life, and not to just simply let it settle somewhere. And so there's this reality that I want to see us take this knowledge, take this belief, and see it come into our lives. I think this is actually something very important to me personally because I've had an experience of this in my own life. Back when I was just starting Bible school, I had already done uh, three years at RCC. I stuttered saying that. Um, and uh, kind of was there for engineering work and I'd moved to Cal Poly and now had jumped over to, uh, to Biola. I was at Biola and a friend of mine came back. He was in the master's college. He'd just been finishing off uh, an overseas time where he was in Jerusalem studying and he came back and his conclusion and all of his studies, he came to our friends and said, I don't believe in the Trinity anymore. And we're just kind of like, what? And he's like, yeah, I've tried to argue it with people over there. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. I can't explain it. It, it doesn't mean anything. And he got into this big kind of tirade about it. In fact, he had a couple books and this guy he was promoting. And so, you know, I ended up with this book and I had a lot of friends that just kind of went with him. They were like, hey, he knows the Bible really well. We go with him. I had that book and I'm sitting there going, man, I have an opportunity here to plug my ears and just la, la, la and walk on forward or to engage this. And to be quite honest, I was pretty unsettled in the concept of, of the Trinity suddenly. Having taken in arguments I hadn't heard before, disturbed by what I was seeing, curious if he was correct, I began to study myself, reading various verses, buying books on the Trinity, watching, um, watching whatever videos I could get a hold of at the time, which weren't very many. But the best thing I could do was I went to my professors at Biola and I just started asking questions. I shared with them the information I was given. And what was neat was, you know, at a, at a, for professors, they don't sit there and go, don't ask those questions. Those are out of bounds. That's not what professors do. They encourage thought. And so they would ask me questions back. We'd go back and forth. They'd point out texts. In fact, one guy knew this study really, really well. And so he began to pour into me some of the information about this other writer that this uh, guy had been talking about. And in the midst of it all, I came out still believing in the Trinity, but not believing in the Trinity in the same way that I had before. Before it was head knowledge and, a, and an extent that, yes, God is, is the Trinity. And, I, and I, maybe I knew how to you know, state that. But now I had wrestled deeper in how do we understand it? I had pushed my mind to the edge of, of really trying to contemplate, well, what is the theology? What's the church history in it? And what had happened instead of me just having more head knowledge was suddenly it affected my prayer life. Suddenly it affected the way that I viewed church. It affected the way that I approached God. It affected the way that I understood how he had made creation. And it began to implement itself into every part of my thinking and much of my behavior. 
And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about unsettling your beliefs so that it's just not some stuff you hold in your head, but what you read in the book becomes what comes out in your life. And I think that's what Jesus was really getting to in the parable of the sower. Now, I understand there's other aspects of the sower's parable here that we're going to look at, and that it's predominantly floating in an idea of evangelism. So, but there's more to it here than just evangelism. So we're going to look at this. It's found in Luke chapter 8. If you want to grab a Bible, open it up. You can join with us. Um, in fact, if you don't have a Bible, we provide them under the seat. So you can reach under, pull it out. Or if you've got your device, you can open up to Luke chapter 8 and you can join us right there. And this is how it reads. It's a, it's a classic verse in the church. Many people have heard it and know about it. And, and, and if you haven't, this is your first time through that, that's great. I hope you enjoy this. But it reads this way. And when the great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, meaning Jesus, he said in a parable. And this begins a portion in the text where Jesus begins to speak in parables, which are stories with a point. And so they're, they're thrown alongside teaching. And so he begins with this parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. The birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell along thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. It's not just the gospel, it's the word of God. I want you guys to grasp that thought, that what they're throwing out is the teaching, the seed. It's going out indiscriminately, and the one along the paths are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And... As for what fell among the thorns, they're the ones who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. For that in the good soil, they are those who hear the word, hold fast and honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. And so there's these four soils, which are different types of people that are hearing the word indiscriminately blown, sent out. And so in a sense, Jesus is talking about the gospel. Those who receive it are going to be saved. But he's also talking about the fact that those who receive it ought to come to a place that they're mature. They bear fruit. They also produce seed. They, they send the word out as well. So, so we're going to look at each of these kind of in an interesting way about the unsettled life. And where have we settled? Because the goal, I think, for us is to reach maturity, where what we see in the book, we see in our lives. What we read in the scriptures, what we see Jesus and those, these people doing, what we have instructed to us and the wisdom given is actually coming through who we are, that you and I become living illustrations of the Bible. That, I believe, is what maturity is. That's the goal that we are going to aim at when we talk about unsettling our beliefs. So our steps are pretty simple. The first one is just simply identify where your beliefs are settled. I could leave it there, but let me give you some categories and some thought. 
First of all, some of you here today, you, you may be a spiritual person, but you're not a Christian. You're not a believer in the sense that you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You may not even be a spiritual person, but you're here. You're, you're hanging with family. You come, and there's some of you in here. I want to challenge you this morning with a thought. I want to challenge you to unsettle your beliefs. You know, I know that many of us have come to this thinking about Jesus and about who he is. Maybe he was a prophet, just a good teacher, something like that. But what's interesting is in our class launch pad, when you sit at the end of it, what we try to do is, is we invite people to learn how to rightly communicate the Christian belief without being offensive or acting like jerks. Look, we do that, don't we? We've all met somebody who has a great way of talking about God's love in a very angry fashion, which doesn't really match. And so we want us all to learn how to be equipped well enough to give away the message in a way that is kind and that can be considered. And that's what our Launchpad does. And so when they come back, um, they go out, they engage in this kind of a conversation. They come back and they, they talk about it. And invariably, the ones I've heard and the vast majority is kind of disheartening to me. And, and if, you're, if you're not a Christian, I want to I ask you to consider if you're in this category. They're so settled in their beliefs, and yet when they're asked questions about what they believe, they don't have answers for their own beliefs. In fact, they've never thought beyond an initial kind of Twitter view of their own spirituality and their own answers. No, nah, there's no God, evolution. Well, what's your evidence for evolution? How does that work out? How can you as an animal simply know anything if you're just an animal? You know, kind of the basic worldview questions and people go, I, I don't know, I've just never answered, I've never thought about this, I, this is just what I believe. And, and what's interesting about that is I want to challenge you that maybe this morning you made up your decision to be a non-Christian or a spiritual person way back when you were younger. Maybe it was junior high, high school, maybe it was early college. I don't want to challenge you that 2,000 years of information has been passed back and forth. Conversations of intense philosophical levels, historical nuance have been bantered for centuries. And that maybe we need to consider that maybe I landed too soon. And I want to encourage you to be the kind of person who might be willing in this time period, you may not be a Christian, but be willing to open up your heart to begin to have a conversation and say, I've got questions. I've got a lot of questions. In fact, I, don't, I think this stuff is hooey. It's ridiculous because of these reasons. What do you think about those? I would challenge you this morning to possibly enter into this series by grabbing an orange card and saying, I'm one of those people and I would love to have a conversation. We have people who would love to join you in that conversation. Because we believe you should be able to ask those conversations and start a journey, not come to church and end one. And so I want, to encourage, I want to encourage you, that's you, that's how you can join in. Because the first thing that Jesus said is there are those people who hear the word and it bounces off their cranium. It just, boing, doesn't even go in. It's not affecting you. You've made up your mind. You've got it done. I want to encourage you, don't be in that group consider it. The second group is this group of people who they take in and, and they get pumped about it. They're like, yeah, I love Jesus. And you're like, oh, you really love Jesus. That's cool. And some of you may be here today, but what you've done is you've entered into a case scenario where, as it says, that there are those who have heard and they, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing, fall away. And you may be in here today believing for a while, but your time of testing hasn't come yet. Do you have a root? And this looks in a lot of different ways. This can appear in a bunch of different forms. Some of you have read, you, you came down and you, you received Jesus on a field or at church, and maybe you, you started a journey, you read Genesis, 
and you kind of stopped because Exodus was good, like hard after the end of the story portion. You pick up the gospel and you've read that a little bit and you picked at the Bible here and there, but it's a really foreign book and it's really odd. Let's just be honest. It's written thousands of years ago. There's no mention of iPhones or Kindles or anything like that at all in the Bible. And so it's a very foreign book. And so when we get into this, you're kind of like, yeah, I've got enough. I think I'm good. And you just settled. You settled just for enough information. Others of you, you've settled for the emotion. You're like, I love Jesus. And you're like, I love God and I worship you. Go, Mark, you're awesome. You're my favorite person. You know, it's like you, you're into the music. You love prayer. And yet you have yet to have engaged in the depth of thought that the scripture would call you to. You're not quite sure what a doctrine is. You know there's theology. You say, I'm good, but you haven't examined it. You haven't considered whether it's true or not. You have a great emotion, but is there any grounding in the thinking? You, the, in other words, some of us, we need to identify whether this doctrine is settled in our mind or settled in our emotion and hasn't moved forward. And there's others of you in this room right now going, yeah, that's right. We need to get into the theology and the doctrines. You need to get in there. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. If you've studied all of this information like I have for years and years and years, you've gotten all of this into your brain, has it moved into your emotion? Does it motivate and move you to where suddenly the concept of the Trinity, where the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, so dramatically does God love the, the, within themselves? They created this world out of their love, and they created us to be participants in that love. Does that sink down so deep it excites you and motivates you? That in worship, when we see those words and the concepts, it provokes in you a desire to give yourself over to God and his worthy worship. Or is it just some stuff you know and you like to fling around? Has it gone so far that we wind up living in a powerful manner that we should? You know, some of us, we need to be challenged. We, we ought to be teachers by this time. You've been a Christian a long time, and as Hebrews says, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need somebody to teach you again the basic principles. And so some of you have just stopped short. You, you, you've been a Christian a long time. You should know this stuff by now. Others of us, we aren't doers. We're just hearers. We know it, but it hasn't come into our lives. I got it all in my head. You know, I've got a ton of doctrine in my head. And I've been convicted this week so much that so much of that doctrine needs to come out through my life. So much more participation in the truths that I know ought to be coming out in the actions that I do. And so... That's what James is saying. If anyone's a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. By the way, mirrors were rare in their time period. That's why you could forget what you looked like after looking, not in our world where you wake up every morning and see yourself. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, presses on, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Are we content with knowing or have we moved on to living, to doing? What we read in the word, what we see in the Bible should be seen in our lives, should come out in how we live. That's the challenge. And so maybe that's where we're at. Maybe we fit in one of these categories. Right now, take a second. You got a piece of paper. It was handed to you as you walked in the door. Hopefully you grabbed one. And you got, a, you got pins in the seats. Mark yourself. Write down where you're at. What category do you find yourself in? Are you, has it settled in your mind? Has it settled in your emotions? Has it, are you just a doer but you haven't thought about these things? Where has it settled? Challenge yourself. Write that down.
And I guarantee most of you are not writing at this moment. You're waiting for everyone else to write it. I'm encouraging you to write it. You're not that smart. The devil wants them to think you are. And uh, so you need to give yourself a note. Then you're going to share it with your small group so you have accountability. And that's how this works. So right now, go ahead and grab that pen and mark it down wherever you are. And so give yourself that chance. Now, as we approach the second step, the second step is interesting. second step is really we need to overcome the fear or pride of being unsettled. Notice how Jesus puts this. He says, and the ones who are on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and time testing fall away. And as for the, what is, fell among the thorns, these are the ones who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. Some of us, we hear it and we're so worried about life. We're so concerned about the issues. We have so much fear that's going on. We didn't move on. Or we're so sure we have the answers and so proud of our answers. We never examine it further. So we've described these two conditions already. Pride and fear. The worries of life or the knowing. Bink! And so it bounces off my cranium. And so these two positions are dangerous because they cause the inability to grow and develop. My friend who had come back from Jerusalem, I saw it in spades, the kind of pride. It was the one thing that made me back off because he was so sure of himself. It didn't matter what we brought to him. It didn't matter what other books we offered. It didn't matter what other perspectives we, we tried to bring into the conversation. He was not going to have it. He had already come to his conclusion we were all wrong, and we all needed to turn to his way. And in his pride, he didn't engage the very questions that his friends and others were bringing to him. At the same time, I don't think that's much of the issue in the church very often. Some of us can be proud, and we cannot listen to, to issues. But a lot of us, I guarantee, are more likely to fit the second category of fear. Kevin was recounting a time uh, when he was, uh, many years ago, where he was teaching a Bible course at a college in Pennsylvania. One of his students in there was a young lady who had gone through all the classes, and she was getting her degree in Bible, and by the end of it, finds out she doesn't believe any of it. She's a complete atheist. And he's like, what? Confused about this, he engaged in a conversation with her one day and said, how can this be? How, are you, how can you go through all this information and come out and total disbelief that we've talked about all these things. And she's like, oh, I'll just tell you how it works for me. When I was younger, I had all kinds of questions. I came out of children's ministry and I asked, how can God be good if all, there's all this evil in the world? She came out of you know, youth groups saying, oh, how can we trust the Bible? It seems to have so many errors. She came out of another place and had other questions about how can sharks eat meat before there's a, even death? You know, that kind of stuff that ponder, people ponder. Anyway, or at least I do. The, and, and so she comes to her parents and says, what about these things? And invariably, every time she brought a question, her mom would go, no, 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 no. We don't ask those kind of questions. We just trust it. Don't worry about it. La, 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 basically kind of idea. We just have faith. You ever been thrown that? She'd been thrown it so many times, she felt like her questions were like whack-a-mole. Anybody remember whack-a-mole, the game? It's great. Question, pomp, 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 pomp. And maybe you've grown up in a whack-a-mole scenario where you've asked great questions and all you've heard is you just need faith. You've had some pastor wagging his finger at you. Don't you dare ask those questions. Let me just tell you here at Olive Branch, we want you to ask the questions. How are you supposed to develop a knowledge of your faith without asking a question? If the God is the God of truth, why would we be afraid of a question? In fact, I used to encourage the youth ministry all the time. I'd say, you know, most 
questions asked of Christianity have been answered since the 14th century. Pretty much haven't heard new ones since. Oh, lots of variations on them, but Christians have answered these questions for a long, long time. There are plenty of answers out there. I haven't heard a new one yet. Um, We're getting some new ones, but they're more like based off of like, did you really ask that question? But the answers exist. People are answering the questions. The Christian worldview has a robust, powerful ability to answer all kinds of things broad. And so maybe you're afraid to ask your question. Maybe you're afraid there's not an answer. What if I find out my faith isn't real? And I think that's what most people are afraid of. Trust me when I tell you asking questions will not lead you to not believing. If we go forward asking true questions with humility, willing to engage the answers. And here's the humility I speak of. While you can be free to ask your questions, I think that helps settle a calm. Like, really, I can ask a question? Yes, you can. In fact, I encourage you to do so. Whenever you've got one, send email, do something like that. Questions are great. But the second part is that we come with humility. What do I mean by that? Guys, do, do we realize how small we are? I mean, one of the worst conditions that you can have is to think that you can shove every bit of theology and knowledge into your head. I remember years ago, Brent Branchod, who, who does announcements in here once in a while, he was in my small group, and we'd go round and round about um, free will and God's predestination. Anybody had that conversation before? Does humanity have a choice? Does God know everything and has organized everything? And we would go back and forth over and over and over and over. Six years of this conversation in small groups goes on. So finally, one day we look at each other and you say, you know what's interesting? Scriptures indicate there's this free choice, yes. And scriptures indicate God has got everything under control, yes. He's got all of this predestination and all of this free will. Man, What if God included these two things because they're both true and there's a powerful paradox involved that the finite mind cannot put together? Have we ever pondered the fact that our God is the infinite God and that you and I are a finite little speck on a speck of a planet? That the greatness and the vastness of God is able to include all thoughts of all times and all moments in one thought? That it all fits together for him because he knows true reality and we apprehend only portions of reality. That maybe we back off and realize there's great mystery and that you and I cannot and will never contain fully all the answers. Which leads you to be humble. Because you can't know it all. And it won't always fit together perfectly for you. And you go, but, 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 well, hold on a second. Our science has gotten to the edge where we have these subatomic particles and we have no idea how they work, whether they traverse space or don't or jump quanta. All this stuff is confusing to the scientists because it doesn't fit in the normal order of things. There's mystery woven into the very fabric of creation. Do we not expect there to be a great mystery with a great infinite God? And that perhaps if you think you figured out everything about God, your God is probably a little too small. And that means God is not interested in denying your questions. He's provoking you because he wants to take the doer, the handyman, the guy who is, who is difficult thinking about things, and he wants to make you a philosopher. And he wants to take people like me, the armchair theologians and philosophers, and tell us to get off our duffs and get out there and become doers of that very word we think about. And that what he is trying to create is not big brains and big arms and big hearts, but big, real human beings. That he wants to see what's in the word be in your life. 
And he invokes and says, come to the feast. Don't ignore it. Come, enjoy, plumb the depths, but remain humble. Don't fear. I will guide. Remain humble. You're not going to figure it all out. And that doesn't mean, oh, well, if other people haven't figured it out, I should quit. No, he's trying to guide you in deeper to think and to feel and to live. That's what we have here. And that's an unsettled belief. So step three is to practice putting what's in the book into your life. You've identified places. We're going to overcome that fear by knowing the invitation is available. Now let's put it into practice. How do we do this? Classically, it's, it's, a, it's called meditation, but we're going to get that in a second. I want to start here with this concept that in the Shema, this is the great commandment. The Hebrews will, or the Jewish people pray this morning and evening, and they pray this as a prayer. They say, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Here's a fascinating thought. Any other like people around here like have to suffer through piano practices as a kid? Right? You're like sitting there. You're like, ah, you know, it's like... Metronomes, you hate them, right? That's just kind of how life works. Uh, I liked actually learning the piano. I enjoyed playing it. I don't get to do it as much as I used to. And for me, my problem was that I would learn the music on the page. I learned how to read it and I'd play it out. And once I got it down, I would just stop playing the music. I'd play it, she said I'd play it by ear. And so I would just, eventually I'd know what it's supposed to sound like and I'd play it. That there were some things that I got to that I didn't just know by ear or I knew how to read the music. It had moved from that to not just memorization. Memorization was like click, 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 click. Do, 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 You know, click, click. And it's like, you knew that. It was another thing to play it from your heart. It was another thing to have it welded into your soul so that you knew when you sat down, sheet music or none, the metronome was rolling in your heart. The tick was going, the beat was in your hands, and suddenly the music didn't just come out as straight. It was coming out. It had flow and emotion and was coming out of your hands, and the whole of you was working through it. In fact, if you could, and you were an expert at the piano, you'd be able to play variation on it and still stay in the song. That's to know something by heart. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They should come out of your life. They should flow from it. What is in the word should be coming through your life, not just through your memory, not just through your emotions, not just through your doing, through the whole of who you are is what he's saying. And so how do we do that? You do it by knowing this book. Now, I want to challenge you not to drive into the Bible as a consumer. Many of you are on the challenge. I'm going to read the Bible every day, and you're going to read through the Bible every year. Great. Do that. But don't consume the Bible. I would rather an entire church that's never read all the way through the Bible, but read deeply in the Bible so that the Bible has consumed your life. I would much rather see a people who know the word so well that it has overwhelmed the way they live and their decision-making and their actions and not be able to claim, yeah, I've read that before. No, 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 no. If we approach the Bible as a consumer, we'll eat it plenty, but has it consumed you? That's when we will begin to move the word 
from the Bible to our lives. When we begin to consume it. So how do we do that? Well, that consumption needs to occur. It does need to come in. And it needs to occur in the original context. There needs to be this consumption of the word as it was originally intended. We just don't go to it and say, so what does that mean to you? Oh, I think it means that my Uncle Larry is a nice guy. You know, no. You need to get into the word and allow it to be in its original intent. That's why we talk about, you know, Paul's locked up in jail and he's sitting in a kind of jail where the stuff's running under. Oh, that informs this word. We want to bring out the historical context. We want to bring out the difference between our world of technology and information to their world of gritty, real dirt, dust, and life of survival. And we want to bring it into how they thought. We want to be able to sit there because we want to know what God said to them so we know what he meant to say. Once we know what he meant to say, then we can engage it. We can actually grasp, this is what God meant us humanity to do. I need to do that. And so that's why we challenge you guys to really read the Bible in its context. Get into its original idea. Know it. That means you've got to study it. Flag on the play. Study. You said the word study, sir, and read. Two things I do not do. And most men will tell me this. I don't read the read. I don't read. I, I get it. Some of you actually have, you know, you, you may not be able to read. There are things that happen for us that we can't. Uh, again, I want to point back to audiobooks. If you have an iPhone, get U version on there, open it up. It has tons of Bible uh, options and it gives you an audible version. You can listen to dramatic readings of the Bible. Or you can listen to really plain, boring readings of the Bible. Either way, you have options to listen to the Bible. And you will be in good company. Because until the Gutenberg press, most people didn't have a Bible that they called their own. They had to hear it being spoken to them. My point is, whether you read it or you hear it, you need to think and study the Bible. I'm not a very good student. I was a horrible student in high school. I'm not, I, I just don't study things. I don't believe you. And, and here's why. Here's why I don't believe you. And I'm being facetious a little bit here, but some of you have put a lot of time into your fantasy football teams. <laughs> you studied every stat. You know what guys you got. You're disappointed who you had to pick in the third round because it wasn't your first pick that you actually got somebody else took in the second round. And so you had an adjusted pick that you were going to put into that slot because you knew your point spread needed to be a certain height in order to win. Hey, some of you guys are geniuses at your child's baseball games. You know exactly the technique of throwing. You know exactly how the kids should be catching. You know when and where and what, and what they need to do. You know when they need to round that base. I don't even know what I'm talking about because I don't do that. Some of you are super good at your computer games, man. Holy cow. You know how to mod them. You know how to get into that system. You know how to do stuff on your computer that makes me my head spin. Because guess what? Watch it, Greg. You're going to be a preacher for a second? Yes. We study what we love. Jeremy, we study what we love. And the danger is that I fear we have gotten into such a consumer mentality that you thought I was telling you to read it. Just get into it, read it. You know, when you read it, this thing is not the latest blockbuster. If you want to be entertained by something, go to a movie. Watch television. There's great stuff to watch that's fascinating and, and, and huge. But if you want something to change your life, you don't read it. You let it consume you. 
You take it and you study it. And as you begin to study it, you're going to begin to realize this thing's changing me. As it begins to change you and you see fruit born in your life, in your marriage, as your attitude changes, as a servant heart comes out and your wife or your husband starts going, wow, I don't know what this is, but I like it. When your kids start seeing you calm in pressure, when your work coworkers begin to see you care about them instead of care about a bottom line, when suddenly the Bible begins to emerge in your heart as something living, you begin to go, whoa, this is more important than I ever imagined. And the beauty of what we have here is that you and I begin to see it. That's why we study it. We, we consume it in the original version. You, if you want to go even further, you even want to take in some theology, I, I present to you iTunes on, on, on the university side, the university iTunes, the college iTunes things. Great. Go to Biola. You can actually take all the courses I took at Biola as an undergrad with the best teacher who I didn't get to have every single time. And you can take them right there. They're right on there. Take your theology course, plug it in. Don't let it stay in your mind. He won't let you and let it move all the way into your life. And it's a beautiful thing. It's an opportunity. There's tons of these opportunities that we have But we need to allow it to consume it in its original context. And then we need to be consumed by the word through meditation. Joshua was told before he went off into battle, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. This term meditation, again, is not transcendental meditation. The Eastern forms of meditation was to sit and empty your mind, which, by the way, opens you to spiritual dangers. There are other spiritual agents in this world, and they are very capable of interacting with you when you empty yourself. No, the Bible never, never says empty yourself. It says fill yourself with the Spirit. Fill yourself with the Word. And so meditation is literally to sit and ponder the Word of God, to think on it. That's why I said read deeply, not necessarily broadly. You can read broadly, But I want you to have read something, one of the books, all the books, as best you can, as deeply as possible. What does that look like? Well, first of all, it means you sit down and you get alone. You get in some silence and some solitude after you've read it and you figured out what it says to bring it before God. You say, silence and solitude. That doesn't exist. I know, I have four children. But guess what? There's this thing called earplugs. One of the greatest inventions to the ability to focus And you say, well, I can't focus when it's silent. I know, because we're beginners. We live in a distractible world. The second it goes silent, something in you is longing to fill the silence. And something's calling you, turn that radio on. Watch, try to drive home with the radio off. It's annoying. Your kids won't like it. You're going to be longing to just turn some music on. Sit at home for a long time in silence, it's hard. We're beginners, but that's where it begins. We take that thought, we take that truth, we present it before God, and in that silence, we enter into the presence of the holy. What do you mean enter in the presence of the holy? Don't you realize God's here right now? That the Trinitarian God is all present, the Father is in every place, the Son is in every place, the Spirit is in every place. In fact, the Spirit is specifically dwelling in any believer in this room as his temple, which means he has a special abode within you. And that maybe what we do is we just have believed something, but we haven't sought to engage something. Perhaps it's an opportunity for you to sit down with the word of God and to sit down and go, God, here I am today. I know you're right here with me. This truth is is what you've told me. And I'm just going to ask you a simple question. God, how do I live this thing? 
The scariest thing is when he answers. Now it takes time because sometimes I'm sitting there going, and I've been working on this and I'm a beginner, so it starts here and I'm just like, God, here's this thing. Why am I thinking of Clash of Clans? This is ridiculous. I can't play it with my kids. And I'm just like, okay, God, I'm bringing you Clash of Clans. Okay, get that out of the way. I want to talk about this truth. All right, God, this is an awesome truth. I'm hungry. Okay, get that out. You know, that's going to happen. Focus is not coming immediate. It's something you work on. But what happens is you bring it to God. And as you begin to engage in this process, as you begin to meditate on that word, invariably it will occur where you will say, God, what do I do with this? And suddenly you will get an eruption of conviction that you've never experienced in your life. Because entering before God is not showing up to high-five your buddy. You're walking into the holy God who wants you to live out his very word and be integrated with you. And he's going he's to be like holy fire at times, burning things out of you. And you know what? That's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's elation and truth and joy in the presence of God because he is so great and so magnificent. He is buoying you up. But have you even spent time to go be with him in his presence? And when you're there, what will happen as you bring that word is that it begins to conform your decision-making process. He begins to give you guidance and direction from the scriptures on how to live. And so it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Enter in and engage with God right there. And it begins to shape and change the way you think. And then it begins to come out of your life. Meditation has been classically the direction that this goes. And so when you meditate, you let it work into your life. You want it to go in. Because Hebrews says this, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Two-edged sword. Why do we do that? Blessed, edged, I don't get that. Anyway, so two-edged sword. It's just a long sword that they had that was sharp on both ends and was one of the piercing implements in battle. So it pierced through the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and this is why I think we don't do it, the intentions of the heart. Who really wants to dive in and have God show you, <clears throat> I'd really like to talk to you right now, but what is this over here? Oh, that does, we don't need to think about that. What is that over there? Uh, nothing. But God's going to bring it out. So what do you do if God gives you conviction when you come before him in meditation? That you're reading the text and you realize, I'm not living this out. I have a lot of joy, but I'm not willing to go in deep. God, what, what do I do? Well, I hope that we would have the heart that they had in the book of Acts. When Peter convicts them, they all yelled out, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name is of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying you've got to repent and be baptized. My point is, do you have the heart to yell out to God, God, what do I do? I'm convicted. God, what do I do? And he may say, repent and obey this. Stand up. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. How often do scriptures come into our mind that are precisely aimed that we had memorized, didn't know it, and God has brought them to our recollection because he wants to give you a knowledge that, hey, you, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What shall we do? That's the response when we feel like we need to repent. And then realize sometimes, you're, what, do you, what do I do when I get into elation? I meet God in the midst of this, and suddenly my heart is burning, and I'm excited about what I'm reading. Worship. Sing a song. Hum it. Do some, clap. I don't know if you're like, I'm not a musical person. Write a poem. 
And if it's a horrible poem, don't ever show anyone. But it's your poem to God. That's okay. Do we ever think that's okay? To offer God something without judgment. When my kids offer me things, I'll be honest, they're not always the best things. I'm not going to go hang it up on the wall, but I cherish it for what it is. When you're there and God leads you to worship, worship like you need to worship God. Come before him. When you're there and suddenly he tells you to do something, obey the command because God is working every good work inside of you because scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? The man of God may be complete and equipped in every good work. And so now we move it, we live it, we act on it, we do it. You get up and obey it. Now, you're not going to be 100% perfect all the time. But it's settled into your life. And what we read in the text becomes true in our lives. What comes in our life, what we see in the Bible, should be true in our lives. Now, this is not easy. This takes time. It takes work. And you got to think of yourself as a Navy SEAL, okay? Just get the grit in. Keep pressing. It's a mental toughness that we need to have to begin to implement something like meditation well. And trust me, I know we can do it. And when it happens, it begins to change who we are. It begins to develop the church. You say, Greg, that's great. This is really interesting. And, and I hope I've given you a bit of a hunger. And you're going, yeah, I'm a little hungry. That's cool. But, but is it really worth it? Yes. Even though you may make some sacrifices in your time. Even though you may need to shift some priorities around a little bit. Like turning off the radio and meditating in the car on the way to work or something. I want you to hear how worth it it is. The very original, the first, no, sorry, not the original, but the first psalm in the book of Psalms, the opening of all the meditations states this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law, the instruction of the Lord. And in his instruction, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So if the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and we're called to meditate upon his word, Why should we not bring those meditations before the Lord who knows the way that he may bring it into our lives so that we would be like trees that are ever prospering? I encourage you, let your beliefs be unsettled until they land fully in your life and see what God does. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we ask that you would indeed help us now as we begin at the end of this message and there's so many scriptures we could think about right now. We ask right now, Lord, that you would help us to, to meditate this, this song, which reminds us that we need you. And though we may say it over and over again, would you just allow these choruses to remind us to, to think on this thought? Challenge us to be a people that take the word and, and drive it into our lives in your presence. That what we see in the text might be what we see in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.